Well, tonight we turn to Jude chapter 12, or chapter, here I go again with the chapter thing. There's one chapter in Jude, so turn to Jude, verses 12 and 13. Jude 12 and 13 tonight. Now, if you have taken any scientific classes of any sort, one of the first things you know about observable or evidentiary fact is what's called cause and effect. Now, this is what happens, for example, if someone has a small car and they place it in neutral and you push that car, then the effect is, in most circumstances, depending on gravity, depending on where uh, the car is, whether it's parked on a hill or not, depending on all kinds of other circumstances and the strength that you have to push it, usually leads to that car going forward. Well, so far... Jude has been warning about false teachers, and he's been warning warning them about the cause of many problems within the church in false teaching. Now he turns to the effect. When false teachers are allowed to teach and reign in the church, what is the effect on the church? We'll follow along from six examples that are given in these two verses, Jude 12 and 13. These, that is, these false teachers, are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. That's what we're looking at tonight, is the effect of these teachers on the church because of who they are and what they are doing before God. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, give us wisdom and understanding. These metaphors might not be so clear to us, but Lord, by your grace, your spirit can teach us and cause us to understand. Lord, prepare us for the times when false teachers might try to penetrate our own church or our own families or even our own thoughts that we might teach falsely ourselves. Lord, help us to heed these warnings by your grace. And Lord, let us understand these words by your spirit and apply them to our hearts. And Lord, whatever thoughts or words might not be consistent with your own, let them pass away and never be heard from again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, speaking of cause and effect, I remember as a kid, there was a brief fad when it came to children's literature of what they called choose-your-own-ending books. Maybe you remember that. You read so far in the book and you got to either the climax, the great uh, problem of the book, or perhaps it was a significant point in the book where there was uh, different ways that could, uh, the author could go in the story, And the author would write two or more endings depending on which avenue or which version the reader chose. In other words, you would choose section or option A or option B, whatever that was. And the choice would result in a different ending to the story. In a sense, Jude is warning the church about false teachers. Now, this isn't a choice whether or not you get false teachers. 
Jude is saying there are going to be false teachers. It's not an option. We can't choose either A, that we suffer with false teachers, or B, that we don't suffer with false teachers. But there are two options in how to handle it when false teachers become evident. Either we can discipline exposing these false teachers and protecting the sheep, causing them to stop their false teaching, or we can ignore the problem and let them continue to lead the church astray. Well, he's telling us what happens if we choose option B, letting, the, the, letting these false teachers teach unhindered. What happens in these circumstances? What is the effect on the church? And Jude, in his way, using not three this time, but three times two, six, gives us several metaphors to describe for us what effect this has on the church. The first two examples, I'm going to say, give us the ugliness of false teachers. Here are the first two metaphors that Jude uses. Remember, these are individuals, false teachers, just a reminder of this particular context here. These false teachers primarily that Jude is describing are those who reject authority, those who encourage immorality, and those who basically are looking out for their own interests, particularly in greed and in other ways. And here we come to this passage, these metaphors, and the first one says, These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Now when you first read this, you wonder what in the world is Jude talking about? Well, first of all, it's interesting, the word hidden reefs is kind of an unclear word. If we compare it to the similar passage in 2 Peter 2, we think he may be talking about blemishes. Now, this is the context here. They are having love feasts. Now, what they meant by love feasts in this context was the early church sometimes would, in their practice, celebrate the Lord's Supper and then have a communal meal together after that so that there was both the vertical relationship of the Lord's Supper and the sacrament that was contained therein and then they would have the horizontal fellowship and community that sometimes we might do like we're doing after church next week. So they would have this as a feast. It's called a love feast because they're showing both their love for the Savior and their love for one another. So this is the situation, and it says here that these individuals feast with you without fear. In other words, they are those who probably should fear to have this feast. Now, what does that mean? In the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that we must discern the body of Christ. If we don't understand the gospel or we don't believe in Christ, then the act of participating in the Lord's Supper brings judgment on us because we are reminded that the whole point of the Lord's Supper is to show how Jesus died for our sins. But if we don't understand that or believe that, then our sins are not forgiven. And so it's an opportunity for us to see the warnings of God as well as the promises of God. And so this individual who's a false teacher, remember some of the false teachers described here are just basically unbelievers. 
There are those who may teach good things, may teach even biblical principles, but in their heart they don't believe these things. And instead of coming with fear and trembling to celebrate with the people of God the wonderful truths of salvation, they without fear participate. These are, as it describes, hidden reefs. Now, if these are blemishes in the love feast, which I think perhaps is one of the options that we have here, option one is that this is describing the marred bride. You know what a blemish is. When you have someone who's beautiful and you look at their face and there's something on the face that's a blemish, Perhaps it's some mark from their birth. Perhaps it's some mark from a scar or something that has happened to them in life. Or perhaps it's just a blemish of some other sort. And it can distract from the beauty of that person. And here it is. We are described, the church is described as the bride of Christ. And Christ is telling us through the words of Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that one of Jesus' jobs is to present the bride of Christ without blemish or spot. And so this reminds us that this kind of false teacher is one of these blemishes, so that when the church is seen by the world, and particularly when it's seen by our Lord, he sees the church, but there's this blemish, this blemish of false teaching or immorality or whatever it is that that false teacher is giving, and there's a marred bride. That's option one. The other option is from our ESV translation here, hidden reefs. Now, some commentators will tell you that it's actually perhaps a more plausible interpretation. It's actually a different word than Peter uses in 2 Peter. The idea of hidden reefs, what happens when you have a hidden reef? You have a chance to shipwreck or to get stuck somehow. We know what it's like out here. We live by the ocean. If there's a hidden reef or a hidden sandbar or something like that, you don't know about it, it can do great damage to your boat. This hidden reef, in essence here, between these two things, the marred bride or the hidden reef, the overall result is this. It's what in common parlance we might say are carnal Christians. Those who have a blemish, that is... They don't really believe what they're saying. They just want an excuse to continue in their sins. They don't want to see that they're changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They want to say that the gospel is so full and abounding in grace more and more that we can just go out and sin any way we please. This is one of the ways in which false teachers are described in the book of Jude. And the effect is this, to shipwreck the church's reputation. I want you to think for a minute, just to kind of give another illustration of these metaphors. Now, when it comes to the blemishes in the love feast, I want you to imagine that you are listening to a speaker that has a tremendous bandage on their head. Now, imagine that they have just been through a terrible experience, a great injury of some sort, maybe a car accident or something like that, and they have this bandage on their face. Now, if you were to poll the listeners, you had two speakers who had the same skills, the same delivery method, the same ability to communicate and all those things, one with the bandage, one without the bandage. 
Which one do you think that the listeners would be more likely to retain the content from? Probably the one without the bandage, right? So this is a reminder that this blemish, this bandage in this sense, this blemish on their appearance distracts us from gaining the content necessary in order to be impacted by their speech. In fact, we grasp less of the content than with a similar speaker without the blemish. And here's the way of the world. When the world sees a leader in a church who they know is involved in rank immorality or other types of sin, there's a blemish, and it hurts the reputation of the church. False teachers must, in this case, be opposed. The other is this. You have a hidden reef. You have here someone who has a trap for the people. You know how it is. Really, their teaching is really to get to their goal of their own making. They're out there in order to uh, gain their own monetary satisfaction or to, to gain from their own greed or lust. And pretty soon you come to understand that as you sit down and eat with this person, he's really not about our Savior. He's really about himself. So here it is. Christians or so-called Christians, even teachers who openly sin and openly seek their own ways, even claiming that God's abounding grace makes it okay to sin or may be self-absorbed rather than sacrificial, distract and shipwreck the church. That's ugly. It's the ugliness of false teachers in these two metaphors. But Jude doesn't stop there. He not only talks about the ugliness of false teachers, he talks about the empty promises of false teachers. Here are the next two. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds. You know, it's interesting here. When you look at these self-gorging shepherds, what are they doing? They are doing exactly the opposite of what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to feed the sheep. They're supposed to take care of them. They're supposed to protect them. In fact, the whole idea of having this crook is that they would at times pull that sheep out of danger or, if necessary, use that crook to bash the enemy on the head. And what are they doing? They're looking in the ugliness of what has taken place. They're looking to satisfy their own lusts and desires. This is exactly what Ezekiel was saying about the false shepherds of Israel and Judah in Ezekiel 34. He says, look at these shepherds. They just feed themselves. They feed on the fat, all of those things. And they grow large on their own lusts for food. You see, this is like a host You know, a host who sits down, and instead of serving their guests, they wait and tell the guests to wait in the other room while they sit down and gorge themselves on the delicacies of their meals, and then they just look to maybe feed the scraps to their guests. Here it is. How ugly that really is. You see, self-absorbed, rather than sacrificial shepherds, distract 
and shipwreck the church, and then, of course, bring empty promises. This is what the waterless clouds are, swept along by winds. These are dry clouds. You know, those clouds that look so promising. Now, for us on the beach, when we look at the clouds, many of us are not farmers. Many of us are tourists or doing other things. And when we see the clouds, we say, oh, no, it's going to rain today. But in most places, historically, around the world, and particularly in agricultural societies like the one that is described here in the scriptures, rain was so very important. In fact, in the Middle East, it was even more important because sometimes it was few and far between that they would get the rain that they needed. And so there were times when they would look on the horizon and they would see the clouds that are coming And they would think to themselves, this is wonderful. We need the rain for our crops so that we can have what we need for the year. And the clouds, as promising as they are, sweep by without dropping a drop of rain. He says this is what false teachers are. They're so full of promise. They might promise wonderful things. They might say, I'm going to build up your church. The numbers are going to be overwhelming. The things that that you are going to experience are going to be so far above what you can imagine. It's impossible not to get there with my teaching. And then on the other side of their teaching, instead of fruit, there's ruin and destruction and nothing there. They find that everything they taught was just a mist or a waterless cloud. That's the first example under promises of false teachers. The second is perhaps a more familiar one. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Now scripture is filled with the idea that once we come to follow Jesus, we will bear fruit. We tend to experience that understanding quite quickly because Jesus uses it, Paul uses it. It's throughout the New Testament in particular that believers are going to bear fruit. And of course, we're also understanding that this is connected to the Old Testament and the result of obedience that flows from faith. Faith comes first, obedience comes later. Faith comes first, fruit comes as a result. In fact, Jesus says, you will know true believers by their fruit. So here it says, these false teachers are like fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. First of all, they're barren trees. In other words, they're not bearing fruit. Perhaps one of the best examples of how this takes place is when Jesus was going to Jerusalem, even though it wasn't the season for figs, he saw a fig tree, he saw that it wasn't bearing fruit, and he cursed that fig tree, and it died within a day. We're reminded that, of course, when we're uh, believing in Christ, then we should be bearing fruit, or we would bear the same curse that God gives this church, or that Jesus gave this church. So fruit is so very important. If we have a teacher in which there is no fruit, and what is the fruit of our faith? What scripture tells us? Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If those things are not exhibited by that teacher, say that teacher has no self-control and just flies off at the handle at the littlest thing. Or say that teacher expresses no love for others. Or that teacher has no patience even with those who might be young in the faith. And the list goes on. 
If there's no fruit, it's evidence that that might be a false teacher, a fruitless tree, particularly in late autumn. Why late autumn? That's the time to bear fruit. We know that. I grew up in upstate New York, and I remember there was an apple orchard not too far from where we lived. And every fall we would go, and it was a pick-your-own apples, or uh, pick them off the ground or pick them on the low branches. You would go in, and you would get your own apples off of the trees. And those trees that had no apples, what good were they to the one who owned the orchard? None whatsoever. They're fruitless in autumn. But why the words twice dead. Why twice dead? Well, it's probably a reference, not only that there's no fruit on the fruit tree at the time and the season for fruit, but it's a reference to the second death. Here it is a reminder that this individual, not being a believer, will not be one that goes to heaven, but will be judged with eternal judgment and experience the second death. You see, this person is described here in this way as an unbeliever, twice dead. The other thing is described here as uprooted. What does it mean that they're rooted up or uprooted? If they're a true teacher, where are their roots and their foundations? They're in Jesus Christ. Someone who's a false teacher, when they're exposed, they're exposed from not having their foundation or their roots in Jesus Christ. They're exposed to be found that they are vines that are not connected or or branches that are not connected to the vine of Christ. And we're reminded that Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So they cannot fulfill their promises. They are worthless. And the effect is a shallow and useless church If a church is swayed by such a false teacher making these empty promises that are not rooted in our Savior, then in the end, that church may have a shallow faith if they were exposed to any type of Christian teaching from the Scriptures. But in the end, because it's not rooted in Jesus Christ and does not bear fruit, it is useless to the kingdom of God. Do you remember the old medicine man? The medicine man would come to town. He sold a tonic that could cure nearly every malady. I remember particularly one of my favorite uh, old-time actors, Danny Kaye, who sang a song in the movie The Inspector General, and there was a song about the medicine man selling this tonic. And it sounded so good. It could heal everything. From anything to do with your feet, to anything to do with your head, to anything to do with the insides of your body, to the outsides of your body. And it sounded like all you had to do was drink this tonic and you would experience wonderful health and long life and vitality. Now it's interesting that even during the pandemic there were those on both sides of either the vaccine or not the vaccine people, of those who wanted this particular uh, reliable uh, method of saving somebody, this reliable method of saving somebody. On both sides, there were some empty promises, weren't they? If you just did X, you wouldn't get the disease. If you would just do Y, then you would be protecting you and your household. But empty promises that don't solve the problem 
empty promises that aren't rooted in Jesus Christ, empty promises that don't bear the fruit of the kingdom of God, lead to barren Christians. Lead to those who probably don't even understand the faith. If we let these false teachers reign in our churches, we will end up with a shallow, useless church. The fifth and the sixth examples or metaphors in verse 13 remind us of the shame that false teachers bring. False teachers bring ugliness. They bring empty promises. They also bring shame. It says there are wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. <laughs> what, a, what an interesting illustration that Jude gives. You know, how did he come up with these? Or, or how did, you know, maybe he, he looked at, at Peter and some of the things that he was saying. These, these are wonderful uh, metaphors, but, but what does he mean by wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame? You know, the, the foam of shame, I think here... What happens when the waves crash in in a wild fashion? They're bringing in all kinds of debris, aren't they? The flotsam and jetsam, hence the title of this passage. I told my wife the last several days that I'm going to explain the difference in the sermon today between flotsam and jetsam. Do you know what flotsam and jetsam really is? According to a, a website on oceans, it says this, the terms flotsam and jetsam can be confusing, as they both seem to describe essentially the same thing, debris floating in the water. However, what differentiates them is the way in which the debris came to be in the water. Flotsam is debris that is left in the sea unintentionally, This is often caused by a shipwreck or some other form of accident. Flotsam can be cargo or even part of the ship itself. The term comes from the French word floater, meaning to float. Jetsam, on the other hand, is debris left intentionally. This may happen when a ship is encountering problems and the crew needs to lighten the ship's load. Jetsam comes from the term jettison and is a deliberate act of removal. As you can see, the primary difference is intent. Jetsam is debris abandoned with intent, while flotsam is debris with an absence of intent. In fact, if you were to look at the maritime law, you would find out that with flotsam, the original owner of the flotsam has a claim to that particular debris. So if you find it and want to treasure it for yourself, you might have to find out if someone else has the rights. On the other hand, if it is jetsam and they have intentionally taken it overboard, that original owner does not have the same rights, and so it is yours in most cultures or in most uh, laws in the countries of the world. Now, how in the world are you going to know when you find debris, whether or not it's intentional or unintentional, that was placed in the ocean? But that's kind of the point, isn't it? The foam of shame brings both intended and unintended consequences. The false teacher, on the one hand, if he truly is a false teacher and an unbeliever who's masquerading himself in order to gain from the people either from greed or lust, is intentionally deceiving them, and there are dire consequences of shame that result. In fact, you know that in many circumstances around our country, some of these false teachers have been exposed to be anything from pedophiles to those who would 
take the money of the poor to those who would just take advantage of anyone they could in one way or another. These intended evils bear terrible consequences of shame on the church. In fact, so much so that the reputation of the church in our country has been tarnished by missionaries and pastors who went in to intend to do harm using the, the, the model of a pastor or a missionary or a, a spiritual teacher and using that model to gain for themselves what they wanted in their own hearts and evil purposes. And these intended consequences are terrible and bring great shame. On the other hand, there might be false teachers who don't even understand the consequences of their teaching and their action. These unintended consequences, the basically flotsam of the day, they bring consequences of shame too. When you're taught things contrary to God's word and contrary to the Lord Jesus Christ, it can lead people away from the gospel and it can give them pause to understand the things of the kingdom. What shame it is. In fact, the scriptures tell us that it's better for us to be thrown into the depths of the sea with a millstone around our head than to leave a, than to leave a little one astray. We learned that in Sunday school this morning. The foam of shame is there by false teachers. And then there's one last metaphor. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. One of those other metaphors that we think, what in the world is this all about? The wandering stars, what were the stars known for in those days? Well, primarily to guide travelers. It was a way, because they didn't have a GPS, they didn't have a map necessarily, they didn't have all the methods and means that we have to determine where we're going, so they would look at the stars. They were set in their course. And if they understood the stars of the sky, which many of them would do because the lights weren't as bright in the cities and in the countryside, and so they would often see those stars every night of their life, and they would understand by the star which direction they would go. But these wandering stars are directionless. Now, it could be because the verb here that's used, wandering, is the word from which we get the word planet. It could be that these are those stars in the sky that aren't really stars, they're planets. And they seem to move through the night sky. They're not set as the stars are. And so they are useless when it comes to guidance. And it says these false teachers provide no guidance. They're just following the whims of the day and the fads of the culture. They're just providing their own advice rather than the wisdom of Scripture. And so they provide no guidance as wandering stars. And of course, in those days as well, you had the misguided astrologers with astrology, the idea that the stars can somehow reveal to you the purposes of the divine. And they would make things up they would look things according to their purposes and their ideas and teach in false ways. But again, what does this false teacher, with this shame that they bring, no direction, no guidance, the consequences of unintended or intended consequences, 
we're reminded that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come come to the Father but by me. You see, our faith is grounded on the unchanging, reliable truth of God's word. It's not just that we say, shame on false teachers for presenting anything other than the truth. It's that these false teachers will bring shame to the church when they bring things that are directionless, without guidance, and bring much shame. You see, the point of Jude, it's not that we find secretive heresies under every rock like some kind of spiritual McCarthyism. That we look at every teacher in the church and we wonder, is that person really a false teacher? And we begin to dive into the depths of their soul and their life and their teaching to make sure that this person is not a wolf in sheep's clothing. The point is to warn the church that there's a reality that false teachers will come. And we won't recognize them at first. They will creep in unnoticed to infiltrate the church But we are reminded by Jude and by Peter and by others inspired by the Holy Spirit so that we will be ready and willing when it becomes apparent that these are false teachers to expose them, to stop them, and to guard the sheep. If they don't point to Christ, isn't that what much of this tells us? There are blemishes in the love feast. They don't understand the gospel. They're self-gorging shepherds. They're interested in filling themselves rather than following the example of the sacrificial Savior. They are dry clouds and barren trees, those that, that promise wonderful things but not based on the promises of God and the scriptures through Christ. They are those who provide not the guidance of our Savior, but the attitudes of the present. If they don't point point to Christ, the effects are devastating. They bring ugliness, false promises, and shame. We must be ready and willing not to be those that just seek out and expose everybody for every little thing that they've ever done wrong, but to be ready to understand when there are those who are unbelievers, those who are just more interested in their sin than in their teaching about Christ, and those who would seek their own way, their own purposes, because otherwise the flotsam and jetsam of the church, the shame of these wild waves, the barren trees will be evident to a watching world and especially to a loving Savior. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we will be prepared when these teachers come to see them, to bear fruit towards them, love, patience, kindness, and the like. But in the end, when necessary, if they will not listen, if they will not submit to your word and your purpose, then, Lord, that you will help us to stand upon your word and to love you in order to bear fruit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.